welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the rise of ACB. And Richard, we've got confirmation hearings going on this week for Amy Coney Barrett, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. And you and I have had the opportunity to talk on previous episodes about the drama around Justice Ginsburg's death and the prudence of the president making a nomination here. But that, to some degree, overshadowed the nominee herself. So tell us thus far uh, what you make of Amy Coney Barrett's potential as a Supreme Court justice. I mean, I've known Amy for some period of time through the Federal Society. She's also an academic. And uh, I would not, as I say, I know her so well that I can vouch to her character. Uh, but everybody I know who's ever known her or worked with her in either the Supreme Court context or other contexts or an academic context has always given her splendidly high marks. They treat her as a woman of high intelligence. They uh, treat her as a woman of great integrity. Uh, they treat her as somebody who's extremely tough in the way in which she works things. And they're all extremely strong. So interestingly enough, if you get yourself out of the uh, environment of the United States Senate where the partisanship is so utterly wrapped you know, apparent, it turns out that uh, she gets uniformly glowing ratings. And, you know, I take these things extremely seriously. Uh, being an academic, being a judge is, is something like being in a glass fishbowl. And if you can survive uh, all sorts of criticisms and gain all sorts of plaudits from your friends, it augurs very well. If you then look, as I did at part of the time at the presentation, I, I try to imagine myself in her seat and how I would respond to some of these questions. And, of course, it would have been completely impolitic. And somebody says, uh, uh, Professor Epstein, you know if you strike down the Obamacare law, 100 million people are going to um, suffer a loss of coverage for pre-existing conditions. I would say, how do you get the number and why should they have pre-existing coverage anyhow? Can't the market handle that? Uh, you want to talk about a doomsday approach. All you have to do is what I do. And what she did, in effect, is the first thing, she's absolutely unflappable. Her face was to some extent like a mask, and whenever she was asked a nasty question, she sat there. She never interrupted. Whenever she was subject to various kinds of abuse, she simply put the whole thing aside. Uh, so that in the end, uh, what happened is that she was never provoked, never made anything that was uh, impolitic, never gave them anything to work with. Then the question is, how do you deal with the substantive issues? And, and what she did was she sort of pleaded future privilege. I will explain to you any of my past opinions, if you'd like to talk about them. And I will talk to you about sort of general judicial philosophy. Uh, but what I will not do is tell you what my view is on any issue past or present, which is likely to recur before the Supreme Court, because I think it's inappropriate to prejudge. I have always given that defense a huge amount of respect. And my own view has long been, I don't want anybody uh, who's a nominee for any major position to testify because they're going to be a game of gotcha. Let other people talk about her opinions. Now, what's the difficulty that she has? Um, I think it's actually uh, she is tied too closely to Justice Scalia. And, you know, he is a man who in some cases writes genuinely great opinions and has written some of the worst opinions in the history of the United States Supreme Court. Um, he's a one to ten guy. And if you 
basically want to sort of link up with him, uh, they're going to hit you on his weak opinions, and they're going to ignore his strong opinions. So you're not going to hear much about his opinion on the special prosecutor. You may hear something about Smith. And one of the little interchanges I heard today was on Griswold. And, and Griswold is one of these cases which was widely understood to be completely improbable and off the wall when it was handed down in 1967 or so, when I was, in fact, a student in law school. And everybody says we now have a new form of constitutional law. Uh, the Constitution is embodied in penumbras. It's not embodied in explicit text. And it turns out that only Justice uh, Douglas knows which uh, penumbra happens to be active. And constitutional law is not an exercise in make-believe. Uh, the reason why Griswold never provoked a reaction, and I think Barrett was very good on this question, um, is that, frankly, everybody was relieved that it was decided the way it did. Supreme Court constitutional conditions could either lead or constitutional conditions can follow. If they follow, then they're not going to create a controversy. So if the only state that doesn't allow married couples to use contraceptives is Connecticut, uh, if it's brought into line with other 49 states, this is not going to attract much public attention, even though it might attack, as it did, lots of academic attention. Uh, but when you get to Roe v. Wade and use the same kind of, I can't tell you what clause it is, but I know it's unconstitutional rhetoric. Uh, there are many people, some religious, some not, who essentially have two kinds of responses. One is uh, the institution of the court should not invalidate things if it can't figure out what's going on. Uh, so this is irresponsible forms of adjudication, even if they're right on some abstract merit. And the other view says they're wrong on the merits. Abortion should be illegal. It turns out the protection of innocent life from the depredations of its mother is one of the prime signs of a civilized situation. And even if you don't prosecute the mother, you should certainly be able to shut down the abortion clinics. So you run into a buzzsaw on both counts. And what Barrett said, and she was right about this, is you can't treat this like Griswold, which may be a super president these days that is being vulnerable to change. You certainly can't treat it like Brown v. Board of Education, because the opposition to that decision on institutional and moral grounds began the day it came down. And so it has to be in play. Uh, what she would do about it, she says she doesn't know. And in fact, it's another complication. Overruling past decisions, you have two things to decide. One, was it right or wrong? Uh, most conservatives, myself, and many liberals believe it's just wrong textually and structurally uh, and purposively, so there's nothing to be said for it. Uh, but other people believe, in fact, that does involve some correct judgment. And then if it's wrong, is it so wrong uh, that you're willing to overrule it? Has it been around for so long that you're not willing to overrule it? Uh, do you take a hard line on this subject and overrule many things, which is the Justice Thomas position? Or are you a little bit more faint-hearted, as was Justice Scalia, who said, yeah, I do it, then I don't do it. He was prepared to overrule Roe, but that was in 1992 with Casey. And so when you start looking at it, there's a big distinction between Justice Thomas and his view is if you think it's fundamentally wrong, you overrule it and you don't worry about transitional problems. And Justice Scalia who essentially says, I'm a little bit more faint-hearted on this, and I worry about reliance issues and transactions costs or transitions costs. Uh, he did, in 1992, take the position that he would overrule Roe v. Wade. Uh, the question of whether he would take it 20 years or 28 years later is, I think, an open question. Uh, so what happens is, if your name is Amy Barrett, you really have to decide how you're going to think about this. All the pieces are on the table, but the weighting of them is something that's extremely difficult to try and figure out 
how you coordinate. Let me ask you the prudential question that faces U.S. Senators, Richard. I mean, here, everyone expects the Barrett vote to be something close to party line, if not party line, just because of the circumstances surrounding this and how it interacts with the election. But we don't have to go back that far to find pretty lopsided confirmations. I mean, famously, everybody's been talking recently about the fact that Justice Ginsburg was confirmed with 96 votes, but Chief Justice Roberts got 78. Uh, Even Sotomayor and Kagan got 68 and 63, respectively. So what, in your judgment, is the responsibility of a senator in the opposition party in these circumstances? When ought you to defer to a president's choice, even if the potential justice is not someone you would pick to put on the court? Well, there was the old school and the new school. If you recall, the earlier one that you didn't mention was Justice Scalia, who managed to waltz through 98, I think it was to zero. And then you get Bork, and he went down 50 to 42 uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, What happened was Scalia was a Democratic minority in the Senate. So the Republicans had both the presidency and the Senate. And the Democrats' attitude there was, save your fire, he's going to go through anyhow. Why do you want to pick a fight on something? It's also clear that Scalia was not Scalia in 1986 in the way in which he came to be known 30 years later when he died. And so they did it. With Thomas, uh, what triggered the job, with Bork, what triggered the change to do it first was the fact that they, quote-unquote, had the goods on him. He was the guy who fired Archer, you know, who fired the special prosecutor. Um, it turned out that uh, he was the guy who wrote this very savage attack on uh, Title II of the Civil Rights Act in the New Republic in 1963. Um, so he had done a bunch of things. He was also a very contentious kind of guy, something of a friend, but, you know, he could turn on people very quickly. So it was easy to go after him. Thomas, you then have this natural law debate, because by this time people are starting to get antsy. And that's when Joe Biden takes my book takings, waves it in front of a somewhat befuddled senator, or rather uh, Judge Thomas, and says, if you believe anything in this book, you're not fit to serve. He then actually invited me down to testify, and I decided I'm willing to debate you at any time, but I'm not willing to clog up a nomination process uh, with having an debate with you on on these kinds of issues. You're too much of an intellectual giant to uh, try and want to take you on. And so what happens is you start to switch modes because they're particular causes. When you get back to Ginsburg and Breyer, they're no particular causes anymore. Neither of them had done anything. A Briar Ginsburg was a feminist, but she was well-known and kind of well-liked. She was extremely uh, tactful in the way in which she handled herself. Breyer had something of a bipartisan reputation, and he had done work on deregulation, which would leave him attractive to the Republicans on some issues. So they sailed through. Uh, by the time you start getting to the uh, two nominations, the Alito and the Roberts nomination, I think climate is starting to change a bit. There's more political polarization that is taking place under George Bush. And, uh, you know, we don't have anything on them, but they both did work for Ed Meese, and that may be enough. And so you start to see this stuff kind of being ramped up again. And uh, the Republicans now had basically changed their tune. Uh, if you go back for the years between 1954 and 2005 and figure out the number of judges to the left of center who, in fact, were nominated and put into place by a, a Democrat Republican presidents, it works out to be about three justices 
return. If you add in Brennan and Warren and Stevens and Suda, I mean, you know, you get along this. The Republicans by this time are absolutely determined that that would not happen again. So they do a little bit more uh, ideological vetting, and then the Democrats in turn start to respond. Uh, you get the Kagan and Sotomayor. The Republicans don't quite have the stomach for it, so they vote no. And then when you start getting to, to Gorsuch, there's a lot of trouble. And in Kavanaugh, everything breaks loose. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out in my own mind what has happened there. Uh, but with respect to Kavanaugh, the argument was that we would try to destroy him. And we think we can do it on his record, which they could not. And then they did it on the sex scandal, which I, that, that left everything. So my view about the opposition is it's a free vote. You do not have to explain why it is that you don't believe in comedy. You can announce, if you're Sheldon Whitehouse or anybody else, that I will never vote, never vote, uh, for somebody of the opposite party whose philosophy is antithetical to mine. I might compromise, but I'm not going to do that. It seems to me you can do that, whether you have the votes or don't. What I don't think you're allowed to do is to engage in systematic defamation. And that, of course, is what happened with respect to the Kavanaugh nomination a little bit with respect to Gorsuch. Uh, with Amy Barrett, I don't think you've seen that. I don't think too much has crossed any particular line. I think she's an extremely attractive person, so it's hard to pull that game out. Uh, so what they do is they kind of slowly insinuate uh, that she has a hidden agenda. She has a hidden agenda on the health care case. She has a hidden agenda on abortion. I think it's, it's kind of swarming myself, because I don't believe she has that kind of an agenda. Uh, but it certainly doesn't raise the point. And why is it that the Democrats have taken the slightly softer stand? Because they know they can't stop this nomination. I think every Republican is, is wired. And it might have been some doubt about it by people like myself who are unhappy about going forward. But the moment the Democrats start putting the pack the court metaphor in front of the table, uh, that changes the game. Why should the Republicans put down their most powerful weapon, let the nomination go to the next party and have them pack the court anyhow? Uh, so that instead of it being 5-4 against them, it's 6-5 in favor of them. And I think that ended that. And now I think that Biden actually has to live with the consequences. He is, quote-unquote, not a fan of court packing, uh, but that doesn't mean he won't do it, because even non-fans may do it from time to time. And I think that it actually costs him a little bit, and it may play a role in this election. There's so much at stake and so much fluidity, even when you're only three or four weeks from an election, that you have no idea uh, of what it's ultimately going to look like, even if you understand the current polls. And so I think what's going to happen, strangely enough, is that you're going to see this thing temper a little bit, because I think what the long-term lesson of the Kavanaugh situation was, you engage in behavior like that, you actually hurt your own party as much as you do the opponent. It also basically puts everybody's back up on the other side so that you're not going to win over votes. Or to put it another way, you get more people with honey than you do with vinegar. And so if you're going to try to do it, use a more gentle approach, trying to point out the ambiguities in the record, rather than this blunderbuss approach, which says, oh, here you've got somebody who's simply unfit for life, let alone for a position on the Supreme Court. Uh, so my prediction is that we will not see it ramp up at that level again. And as I always like to say about Mitch McConnell, I mean, he certainly played hardball when he refused to give Merrick Garland a hearing. 
perfectly within his rights, by the way. But the good news was when they didn't have a hearing, he was spared this kind of endless defamation, endless mischaracterization of an honorable man's opinion. And I mean, I'm very glad that Garland did not have to go through that process and then be denied the nomination. It's better that the nomination never did go to the Senate at all. So uh, I think that's where it's going to stand. I hope it gets a little bit better in the future. Nobody can guarantee anything. Final question for you, Richard. Conservatives and libertarians are, are all indulging their various fantasies right now about where the court could go with a justice spirit. We've got a 6-3 Republican majority on the court. Not clear, of course, how often that's actually going to lead to 6-3 rulings, because as you pointed out in the past, the conservative justices don't always move in lockstep. But there almost certainly will be a shift, even if we don't know the magnitude yet. With that in mind, which issues or issue areas strike you as most ripe for renewed scrutiny from a more conservative court? Where is current Supreme Court jurisprudence most in need of an overhaul? Well, I mean, I think it's in need of an overhaul in many places. Um, I certainly think that the constitutional protection with respect to property rights has to be done over and thought again. I think that the constitutional rules on standing have to be rethought because I'm a strong opponent of the Scalia position on those issues. Um, and I also think that administrative law has to be recast so as to get away from the Chevron deference model, which has dominated for so long. Uh, where do I think that Barrett and the Supreme Court is going to go on this? Well, we've seen the justices when they start to talk about property rights, and you know they kind of fudge it. They're sort of in the middle of the road. Their balance is their traitors. I do not believe that there will be any major redefinition in that area. You could be ambler. Penn Central are not going to be overruled or even challenged. Maybe there'll be a little chipping away of it, but we're going to have to live with these rather powerful organizations. I don't believe that they're going to change the rules of standing very much. They're well-established, and they have bipartisan support. I think the area in which you're likely to see the most things move is administrative law. It's subconstitutional. There's clearly tension between the text of the Administrative Procedure Act and many of the decisions that were made under it. Uh, there is also a real sense that the level of discretion that has been given to administrative agencies may have gone a little bit overboard. One illustration of that is the so-called case of Auer against Robbins, uh, where you're supposed to give inordinate deference to an administrative agency in interpreting its own regulations. And, and this thing came up recently in a case called Kaiser. And sure enough, what happened is uh, Lena Kagan wrote the opinion and says, well, I'm not going to overrule our. And then she promptly did just that. Uh, so that instead of having no scrutiny, she says, we give only enormous deference after we give strict scrutiny or something close to that. And so it's very clear that that's moving back. It became very clear in the Bostock case, which I thought was a terrible decision by uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch, I think his worst opinion on the court. But interesting, when, the, when that whole question about transgender rights and gay rights underneath Title VII had come up before, it was all couched in the language of administrative discretion. And then when it comes up now, Nobody argues administrative discretion at all. Everybody's arguing pure textualism of one form or another. And the debate is one of classic philosophers, which is can words bear an objective meaning, which was held by none of the people who supported the particular statute in question. Uh, most linguistic philosophers would say no. Uh, Justice Gorsuch said yet, then he obediently had uh, four liberals whose philosophical views are probably indeterminate, but were quite happy with the result. And it goes 6-3 because Justice Roberts moved along in that 
that same direction. And so I think that you are going to see a little bit more deference to administrative agencies when they start making decisions that favor developers or pipeline developers, whoever it turns out to be, and a little bit more suspicion when you turn them down. My position has always been uh, what you do is use the same kind of standard for both cases. And if you're dealing with an ultimate issue of fact, is this pipeline safe? Is this drug safe and effective? If the agency has substantial evidence in favor of it, its position should go. But you don't want to ever have a dual standard where the moment somebody can find that there's a single mistake in anything that was done when there's been an approval, you could send it back to the agency. Whereas if it turns out they made a mis- miserable mistake, mess of the whole thing, you will let them stand because there's maybe one reason out of a thousand that makes it stand. So I do think that the administrative law stuff will move. What's Justice Barrett's expertise? Uh, she's federal courts, administrative law, constitutional law. So that's where they're going to move. Generally speaking, I think justices are going to be much more confident about moving for better or for worse, in areas in which they have some real live experience, which in her case uh, would be administrative law. And in fact, if you start looking at the United States Supreme Court justices, in one sense, they're all peas in the pot. They are all essentially appellate court judges who have very little experience in private commercial law of one kind or another, not particularly interested in property rights as a field in which they've actually practiced. And so I think the changes are going to come in the areas in which all of them feel more comfortable, which is this administrative law side. And on that particular issue, um, I think Sotomayor no longer has Ginsburg. She will be out there pretty much alone. Uh, There's no question to my mind that Breyer and Breyer and Kagan are considerably closer to the center on those issues than she is. So I think it may be possible that you could kind of forge an 8-1 alliance in which the median justice, well, I guess it would probably now be Brett Kavanaugh, maybe Amy Barrett. Nobody can be for sure. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.